Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Pennsylvania's unfunded pension debt for retired state workers and educators is above 50 million or make that 50 billion dollars big difference that's the third highest debt in the country behind california and illinois nationwide states owe between 900 million and a trillion dollars to pension funds if you count municipal pensions it's over a trillion dollars one of the nation's most respected public policy organizations the pew charitable trust has been studying the pension issue and has made recommendations to states including pennsylvania Joining us on today's program is Greg Menace, director of the Pew Charitable Trust Public Sector Retirement Systems. Mr. Menace, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Let me tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, let's talk about uh, Pew and how you got involved in studying, researching, making recommendations on uh, public pensions. Sure. Well, uh, first off, the Pew Charitable Trust is a nonprofit philanthropic foundation. We provide evidence-based resource uh, research and act as a resource to policymakers across the country on a diversity of public policy issues, from environmental co- concerns to healthcare policy to topics like public pensions. Uh, we've been working closely with legislators and other stakeholders in Pennsylvania for over two years. Uh, we received a formal invitation from both the uh, bipartisan Senate Finance Committee. Uh, in the state legislature, as well as the Senate Appropriations Committee, and have been working with uh, legislators on both sides of the aisle in both chambers, again, providing research and analysis, uh, evaluating different proposals, and providing recommendations on what we think the path forward uh, for Pennsylvania should look like on public pensions. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that figure, and they are kind of, there's a big, uh, there's a kind of a di- disparity there because the numbers are so big, but I mentioned $900 million to a trillion for states of unfunded uh, liabilities. And you told me before the program, if we include municipalities in there, that we're looking at over a trillion. How did it get like that? So again, you're you're absolutely right that the total size of the pension debt or unfunded liability for state and local systems in the country is more than $1 trillion. Uh, That means that states and cities have a trillion dollars less in assets set aside to pay for the pension promises that they've made to workers in the future. And if you look at that, there's really three primary causes. Uh, One is underfunding. Uh, States are typically um, required to make a certain level of actuarial contribution. That's amount of money you put aside today to pay for promises in the future. Um, Underfunding has been a significant driver. The second factor has been the uh, return of pension fund investments. Uh, The 2000s were a very volatile decade, as we all know, both with the dot-com downturn and the Great Recession. Um, That's had a substantial impact on the unfunded liability. And the third issue is, in certain cases, states and cities have uh, increased benefits. That typically happens in good times. And in some cases, those benefits have proven to be uh, unaffordable. It almost sounds as if, and, and certainly it may be the case in Pennsylvania, is that Although you mentioned that uh, those benefits are increased in good Mm -hmm. times, that there wasn't a fallback, that many states did not have, didn't look at worst case scenario, what happens if we don't get the investment returns that we need? You know, what happens if we don't contribute as much as we should? Right. Is that an accurate way to put it? Uh, No, I I think that that's very accurate. And actually, Pennsylvania is an interesting case study on all three of the points that we mentioned. So as you said before, that the challenge in Pennsylvania is that the state-run retirement system, which provides pension benefits to both 
retired state workers and teachers across the Commonwealth, has gone from having a $20 billion surplus in the year 2000 to a $57 billion deficit or unfunded liability today. The reason that's a problem is when a pension system runs a deficit, it requires more and more money to be put into the system each year. So in the case of Pennsylvania, uh, budget costs for pensions have gone from about a billion dollars in 2011 to close to $5 billion today. Um, that's good news for the pension system. It's putting more money to get the system back on track, uh, but it's a challenge for taxpayers because it crowds out spending in other areas. So again, if you look at the three issues that we talked about in Pennsylvania, on funding, uh, what we find is over the past decade, the state only made about 40% of the contributions that the state actuary has recommended to put into the system. That ranks Pennsylvania 49th out of 50 states. On pension investments, that accounts for about $25 billion of the unfunded liability. In that case, Pennsylvania is similar. Every other state was impacted by the Great Recession as well. And then on, on the benefit side, uh, if you go back to 2000 when the state was posting a surplus, legislation was enacted that provided a 25% increase uh, on a permanent retroactive basis. Now, that was since reversed in legislation that was passed in 2011, but only it applies to new workers. Uh, so to your point, in the case of Pennsylvania, all three of those big issues apply. And now the state is struggling to come up with a plan to uh, dig itself out of that hole. We're providing a little bit of history here before we do get into the discussion of uh, recommendations. But I, I read your report of uh, that you made in two, uh, 2014 that was updated. Uh, and one of the things you also said, you, you talked about state contributions, investment losses, benefit changes, but also demographic and actuarial, uh, actuarial assumptions. Is that that people lived longer, that there were people who were using their pensions longer than expected? Uh, well, well, there's two, uh, two important assumptions that go into the actuarial calculations. Um, the first is uh, mortality. What is the expectation of life expectancy uh, for public workers in, in retirement? And the second is the assumed rate of return on pension fund investments. And, and I think in both cases, the most recent valuation reports that actuaries do um, are looking at different assumptions that People are living longer, so those mortality tables are updated from time to time. And I think there's some downward pressure on people think they can get from pension fund investments. Um, so that has definitely been a factor. And, and when we look at the change uh, in the state's unfunded liability from a $20 billion surplus to a $57 billion deficit. But again, the vast majority of that was the impact of underfunding investment losses, and those benefit changes I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I told you I'd be jumping around on you. Something you just mentioned that uh, probably got the attention of many people listening, and you said uh, the, the 2000s was a volatile time uh, in investments. We're living through one right now where uh, in, the, in the last year or so, uh, when you hear the stock market, what, what's going on with uh, investments, I mean, we've gone way down over a thousand points if you go by Dow Jones Industrial. Uh, I, I won't say we've gone way back up. We've had made a comeback, but that is uh, the definition of volatility. So are we in a situation right now where investments for some of these funds could be potentially in danger? Now, that, that, that's a great question. And certainly investors have been on a bumpy ride coming out of the Great Recession. Um, for public pension funds, we've seen annual returns as low as 1% and as high as 15 or 20%. Um, and and what's, what's important to understand is that public pension funds have a heavy level of investment 
in stocks. About 50% of their portfolios on average are invested in the stock market, and another 20% in complex alternative investments like private equity, hedge funds, real estate. So as a result, uh, public pension funds and the costs that go along with them are very much driven by the up and down turns in the stock market. And if you look at the situation in Pennsylvania and the impact that investments have had, that really points us to the reform proposal that's being considered at the State House today. Um, the central aspect of that proposal is that it would put new workers into what's called a hybrid retirement plan that would include a much smaller defined benefit pension with an individual savings account similar to a 401k. Based on our research and analysis, uh, you know, we, we believe that that would dramatically reduce the exposure to unfunded pension liabilities in the future, specifically the unfunded liabilities that can arise with volatile financial markets. And it would also provide a path to retirement security for both career workers and the many workers who may change jobs during their career. Um, so you're absolutely right that the level of exposure that pension funds have, including Pennsylvania to the financial markets, is maybe the consideration and a large part of the reason why uh, we're very supportive of the reform that's being considered today. And we're going to talk about all those things specifically uh, throughout the program today. Let's go to the telephone. Joe is in Dallas Town. Joe, what's your question or comment? Hi, good morning, Scott. Good morning. Um, I joined the pro program a few minutes late, but uh, uh, my question uh, uh, for your panelist is, uh, at what point, uh, since we know that uh, he's already mentioned there was a surplus back in 2000, uh, and now we're 57 a billion in the hole. At what point did we cross over from surplus to deficit? And uh, in 25 words or less, whose responsibility would it have been to alert the public and the legislature to that fact? I don't know, Joe. You sound like an interviewer when you're saying in 25 words or less. <laughs> hey, thank you very much for your call. Yeah, the, the short answer is that uh, on average and across the country, states reported being about 100 percent funded uh, just before the dot-com downturn. Now, there's differences in, be in between how actuarial reporting and uh, different levels of reporting happen, but essentially it was the dot-com downturn that moved the average state pension plan into a deficit. Now, that's nationwide. Nationwide, and, and I think that applies to Pennsylvania, generally speaking, as well. But we did have a, a situation here in Pennsylvania. Former Governor Ridge uh, signed that legislation you talked about that uh, uh, increased the benefits for employees. Now, there was some politics going on behind the scenes, trade-offs here and there that uh, we don't need to get into. But that was a factor in this, correct? That was a substantial factor. And our analysis shows that that increase in benefits probably contributes somewhere between 13 to $20 billion dollars of the unfunded liability today. But in direct response to the caller's question, it's really the collective responsibility of the legislature uh, and the pension plans working in concert to um, address these issues. So in the case of the dot-com downturn, what we have seen across the 50 states is that there was a clear separation of states like Wisconsin and North Carolina, who it responded immediately by following their actuary's advice and putting more money into the pension system. And then a number of states at that time, including Pennsylvania and New Jersey, um, you know, that as far as we can tell, were hoping for a recovery that would help to pay off the pension debt. Um, and I think that shortfall in making those recommended contributions 
um, is really the focal point of uh, where the state got into trouble in the first place. Well, just to be a little more specific about it, when you say that uh, Pennsylvania was hoping for a little bit of a recovery, uh, there were very, there was very little, put it that way, in the way of contributions in 2002, 2003. And, you know, as always over the past uh, 20 years, Pennsylvania was always looking for additional funding, looking for additional money in our, in our budgets. The contributions weren't made. So the, the question I have to ask is, uh, you said those states like Wisconsin that listened to the experts, how can a state not do that? I mean, did it, it's almost like rolling the dice, gambling that there's going to be a comeback. Right. Well, the, the central challenge is that running a pension system well requires a certain level of fiscal discipline to recognize that the decisions that are made today um, are important and necessary to address issues that may not come about 20 or 30 years down the future. Um, so simply put, there was a number of states that did a very good job of responding to some of these economic impacts and making sure that they were putting in required contributions. As a result, they're close to 100% funded today. And there's other places that are uh, working to get back on track. And I'm going to talk about Pennsylvania specifically more in a moment, but I am curious about Illinois and California. As I mentioned, uh, the two states, the only two states that have higher unfunded liabilities than, than we do. What happened there? Well, in, in California, that's in part a function of the fact that it's the biggest state in the country right. and also has the biggest pension system. Um, but Illinois is certainly one of the... Very comparable to Pennsylvania in a lot comparable of ways. And, and, and certainly one of the most challenged states. Uh, in the country. And, you know, the, the issues are very similar. A certain level of pension underfunding that's been persistent uh, over more than a decade. Um, some changes to benefits that have occurred over time. And so it, it's essentially the same story and a, and a similar challenge to Pennsylvania. I ask that question because I always look at these issues, uh, or I think everyone really uh, should look at these issues comparing what other states have done. Uh, the states like Wisconsin. Okay. That ship has sailed. It's too late. But are there other states that were similar to Pennsylvania with uh, unfunded uh, pensions that have turned around? Yes. A, a couple of good examples, and we should talk about the very good progress Pennsylvania has made as well, Right. Right. Uh, include uh, Maine and West Virginia. Um, in, in the case of Maine, they passed a constitutional amendment in the late 90s that requires and ties legislators' hands to make those full actuarial contributions and their pension fund system has improved dramatically. Uh, and West Virginia has probably the biggest turnaround story we've seen. Um, one thing they did was make a one-time contribution from uh, something, tobacco settlement proceeds, uh, that all states received as part of those lawsuits, really to jumpstart the process. But in the meantime, for about a decade, they've also been making full contributions and have seen a similar improvement. All right, we're going to talk more about Pennsylvania in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing public pensions in Pennsylvania. And uh, with us today is Greg Menace, director of the Pew Charitable Trust Public Sector Retirement Systems. They've studied, pen studied pensions across the country, including here in Pennsylvania, for the last uh, two years. We welcome your questions and comments. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is one 800 729 Seven five three two. Before we take more phone calls, I'm kind of 
jumping around here, but uh, do want to bring some history into this as well. Back in uh, 2010, the legislature here in Pennsylvania uh, approved, the governor signed, uh, something called Act 120. And what Act 120 did was it reversed those benefit increases of 2001 for new employees. Uh, The state ramped up its contributions, and employees will pay more into uh, the pension fund if investments underperform. There are many in this state who said within a couple years of Act 120, and there probably still are some today, who said, let it play out, that it's only 2016, that uh, this was only enacted in 2010, only took effect in 2011, 2012. We've only had four years of it, not even four years of it. Let's see what happens. Well, uh, I think that's that's a great question. And to start off with uh, the ramp up in pension contributions that you mentioned, that, that's an area where the state has actually made dramatic progress. As part of Act 120, there was a seven-year payment plan put into effect to get the state back to making the full actuarial recommended contributions. Um, that increase I mentioned before from $1 billion annually in 2011 today to close to, uh, in 2011 to close to $5 billion today um, was part of the Act 120 funding plan. And that turnaround in making pension payments is about the strongest turnaround we've seen and is something that clearly separates Pennsylvania from states like New Jersey, for example. Okay, wait, um, wait, wait, wait. I want to stop you here because, Greg, you're, you know, here in Pennsylvania, we don't often hear where we've turned something around and we're one of the nation's leaders. So right. I just wanted to bring attention to that for just a moment, okay? Right. All right, good. I'm joking with you, but still. No, it, it, it's a very significant development and certainly deserves credit. Uh, as you mentioned before, the benefit changes, the benefit increases for 2001 were essentially reset back to prior benefit levels, but only for new workers. That will have some impact on on the pension system over time, but will take decades as those new workers come into the system. Um, And so overall, I think it was a very successful reform. Uh, You also mentioned that there's a provision that requires a slight increase in contributions from employees if investment returns underperform. Um, We estimate that that could protect taxpayers against perhaps 15% of additional costs if if the state doesn't reach its targeted rate of return on investments. So all things considered, and with the funding policy in particular, it was a very important piece of legislation. But it's really looking forward as to whether the system's set up to protect against unfunded liabilities in the future and whether there's an opportunity to give better benefits to more workers. Um, That has been the impetus of the more recent reform proposals that, from our perspective, effectively build on the important attributes of Act 120. So, and and just kind of cutting it down a little bit, uh, the the ramp up uh, of the, the state contributing more, that's really kind of the only way in which the state can cut into the debt. And when we're talking $57 billion, that's a huge debt. That's right. I, for certain, that is the most impactful way that the state can do that. And um, in, in the most recent legislation, as it was amended by the House Government Services Committee, Uh, The legislature is proposing to maintain that commitment to making full actuarial contributions. And so by 2017, we project that Pennsylvania will go from 49th to the top half of states on that important metric. So it is, in fact, a very uh, important turnaround story. Let's take some phone calls. Jim is in Dauphin. Jim, you're on the air. Thank you very much, Scott. Uh, My question is uh, to your guest, 
concerning the recommendations, and it's a follow-up to the conversation you had a, a minute or two ago, who's responsible. And the question I would have is, did the Pew Foundation take any uh, look at the separation of the fiduciary uh, duties of the pension fund trustees to come up with solid actuarial assumptions and uh, uh, make those investment decisions and separate that from the political functions of coming up with the contributions. It seems that in Pennsylvania we have a lot of our trustees being elected officials and playing games with the assumptions uh, along that line. I just wondered whether there's any recommendation to get the elected officials away from the trustee fiduciary responsibility. Thank you very much for your call. I think the caller is asking a great question that certainly goes back to whether the assumptions that the uh, pension boards that manage the systems are setting are reasonable. Um, I think ultimately in Pennsylvania, though, it comes down to the numbers were clearly understood in terms of what was recommended to be contributed to the system. And for a long period of time, up until very recently, the the state fell short of making those contributions. All right. Let's take another phone call from Jeff, who is driving on Interstate 81. Uh, Jeff, are you there, Jeff? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Thanks. Good morning. Uh, my question is, okay, there, there's billions of dollars sitting in, the, in, in this uh, pension fund. Um, who makes the decision on how the funds are invested? I'm, I'm assuming there's, there's, a, there's a policy somewhere. There's a mix of equities or bonds or whatever the other investments are. How, how are those decisions made? Thank you very much for your call. At the state level, the state and the teachers' pension systems each have a board of trustees. Those board of trustees oversee a professional staff that also works with investment consultants, and they make decisions about the level of investment in stocks, bonds, and alternatives like private equity. Uh, Pennsylvania does have one of the highest allocations to riskier assets, uh, in particular to alternative investments and and a high level of uh, annual fees paid, more than $600 million annually, and studying those investment issues more closely and increasing the level of transparency on pension fund investments, again, is actually part of the reform that's being considered today now, in we, Harrisburg. Now, okay, again, the the antenna goes up when I hear that Pennsylvania has uh, risky investments. What do you mean by that? So, well, broadly speaking, on average, states have about 50% of their investments in stocks and another 25% in alternative investments, private equity, hedge funds, and real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pennsylvania has one of the higher allocations to those three categories I mentioned. Uh, The performance has been about average as compared to other funds. Um, But I think in particular, we are attentive to the fee levels being paid and how transparent pension funds are in disclosing that information. Uh, Here again, Pennsylvania does a pretty good job and provides a lot of information. But the reform proposal does call for adopting some stronger standards that other states are doing, uh, providing complete details on something called carried interest or performance fees for private equity, for example. Mm-hmm. Before we take a few more calls, uh, let's talk about uh, what you're recommending, and that is the hybrid plan. You touched, touched on a little bit uh, earlier, but explain in particular why you feel that this is the way to go for Pennsylvania. Right. So we, we talked about the fact that past legislation takes action to address the historic unfunded liability, and what the hybrid plan does is look forward. And it would propose to put new workers into a plan with a much smaller defined benefit pension combined with an individual retirement savings account similar to a 401k plan. Uh, The reason that we're supportive of it is, number one, it would have a dramatic reduction on uh, protecting the state against future unfunded pension liabilities. We estimate the taxpayers would be protected against about 60 percent of any additional cost if the pension fund investments uh, don't achieve their rate of return. 
That's the most significant action any state will have ever taken on that front. Uh, secondly, it maintains a path to retirement security for public workers, uh, career workers who benefit the most from a pension system. And the state, for example, would still be expected to get something like 90% of their take-home pay in the form of retirement replacement income, what they would get from the state's pension system. And last, this is a proven model. The hybrid model that we're looking at is something that the federal government put in place in the 1980s, Washington State implemented in the 1990s, and several other states have uh, also adopted in the past few years. And working closely with policymakers, we provided recommendations to essentially take the most important and best implemented aspects of those proven examples of hybrid plans. And so as a result, we think this is a good deal for taxpayers, and it's a good deal for workers. But another fact there is that um, somewhere around two-thirds of teachers in Pennsylvania don't stay in public service long enough to become vested and get a pension from the public sector pension system. And as a result, many younger workers are, in effect, undersaving for retirement. Under this plan, those workers would walk away with much more than they have today um, as a result of the individual savings account. So we think this is really a terrific reform and, again, would be the most uh, uh, significant reform any state has enacted. Pew is bipartisan, as you said right up front. Uh, you deal with uh, both Democrats, Republicans, and when you're making recommendations. But the, the bottom line is that there are politics to be considered in some of these issues. Uh, Pennsylvania public employee unions have come out against the, the hybrid plan. They, they say that, you know, the, when you talk about security, that the best security for their employees is that defined benefit plan that we've always had here in Pennsylvania. And one of the arguments is, is that uh, public employees uh, traditionally did not earn as much on their paychecks. And one of the ways that did what one of their benefits was that they did get a defined pension. So with all that said, what do you say to those who say that real security is keeping it as is. Right. Well, I, I think, you know, first off, we make note that public employees in Pennsylvania also have the benefit of Social Security. Uh, second, the hybrid plan does, in fact, preserve a, a defined benefit pension. Uh, essentially, it goes from providing 2% of salary for each year that you've worked to 1% of salary. That's still a very significant benefit. And by also including an individual retirement savings account, workers would have a three-legged three stool that continues to provide a path to retirement security. All right, let's take some phone calls. Mavis is in Gettysburg. Mavis, you're on the air. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, I have a major concern about this continued transfer of wealth from the majority to financial institutions. A question that I have is, um, do you have a dollar amount of money that has gone to private equity in the state of Pennsylvania and nationwide to manage state pension funds? Is that something that you've studied, Greg? Well, let's talk about this on a nationwide basis, and, that, and that's a great question. Um, we recently came out a report that called for an increased level transparency on pension fund investments. One of those recommendations was for all the funds to disclose all of the fees they pay to private equity managers. And what's happening today is that there's something called the management fee, which is the regular fee that gets paid to anybody who's managing money for the fund that does get reported. But there's something called carried interest or performance fees, um, where the private equity funds take a share of the profits. Um, that is not included in that reporting. And I think our estimates are that there may be undisclosed fees for private equity um, somewhere around the neighborhood of $5 billion. Nationwide. Nationwide. Um, and Pennsylvania does have a substantial level of private equity investments, and so it would be 
one of our recommendations, and this is actually reflected in the proposed reform that's being considered in the State House, to provide full disclosure on all the fees that are being paid to all the investment managers. Maybe see, I don't think he was able to answer your question specifically, but you get the idea? Uh, actually, um, as a person who has a background in research, I would be very concerned that a proposal would be put forward without having that type of information. What, what do you say about that, Greg? So, it, well, if, if we look at the um, asset allocation for the Pennsylvania Pension Fund today, uh, there's 51% of investments in alternatives. That's private equity hedge funds. Uh, and real estate. The total level of fees that's being paid for the entire portfolio as of 2014 reporting was $641 million. Um, that's a higher level in about 80 basis points on assets than we see for most other funds. Um, and there is reporting detail again on each of the different asset classes from private equity to hedge funds to stocks and bonds. Um, but I think there, uh, what we are calling for is additional disclosure that addresses some of the issues like performance fees. So that information is available. I think what we're emphasizing is that the state does provide a lot of information today, but has the opportunity to raise the bar on transparency for pension fund investing. So I would recommend that everyone look at uh, the CalPERS situation in California and possibly uh, Eve Smith on NakedCapitalism.com to really investigate how this uh, the the private equity actually works with these uh, pension plans to uh, really divert a lot of money from them instead of going into the pockets of the people who have been promised what they've worked for. Now, I don't have a bone in this fight. I'm not a, a state worker or employee, but I do pay taxes here in Pennsylvania. And I'm very, very concerned about this worker-against-worker worker situation that we have going on here and these divisions that are being created all to feed what I call a financial beast. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks for your call. But go ahead. You want to respond to that, Greg? Uh, just real quick. I think the caller may be referencing a report that CalPERS, uh, the California Public Employee Retirement System, the largest one in the country, came out with that uh, disclosed about $700 million in fees that are paid to uh, investment managers that previously had not been brought to the fore. And I think it's a terrific point. Um, there's also an organization called the International Limited Partnership Association that has established standards for increased transparency and in fee reporting. Uh, South Carolina and Missouri are two states that have essentially adopted those standards or at least provide additional detail. Um, so here again, I think the point about the need for increased transparency and the fact that that's actually part of the reform bill being considered is is completely valid. Let's take one more call from Ed and Marietta. Ed, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, sir. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, welcome. Hey, economic, economics 101, okay? All right, if you're a debtor, you want to pay off with inflated do dollars, okay? So basically, there's, you know, this $53 billion number, it sounds so dramatic, but in 20, in 20 years, okay, if you're paying no increase, to the beneficiaries, okay? Isn't there a degree of smoke and mirror that you're paying that two, you're paying that teacher two thousand dollars in year two thousand sixteen, but you're paying her two thousand dollars in the year you know twenty thirty two? So in the end, okay, inflation wipes out a lot, okay, of this huge number of fifty three billion. Can right. you help us with that? Thank you very much for your call. Inflation a factor. Uh, well, I, uh, certainly, well, cost of living increases yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. So, well, on the benefit level, that's a great point because both today and with the new proposal, um, the core benefits in Pennsylvania currently do not in include an automatic cost of living adjustment. Now, workers do get that cost of living adjustment uh, through Social Security, 
but that's absolutely something that should be part of the equation. Um, and here again, I think we have made recommendations to policymakers to look at a new benefit design that has a three-legged stool with Social Security, defined benefit plan, uh, and an individual retirement savings account, um, and build in mechanisms to make sure people are adequately planning for retirement because it is absolutely true that today and going forward, the state-sponsored benefit in Pennsylvania does not include a cost of living adjustment, but there are ways to build that into the retirement plan going forward for for workers. Just a couple more questions because uh, we know that uh, school districts in Pennsylvania have been greatly impacted by this. How have they been impacted? What can they do? So, well, I, I mentioned before that the total amount of budget contributions have gone from about a billion to $5 billion in recent years. Um, about 35% of that is paid at the local level by school districts um, who pick up about 55% of the cost of pensions, uh, both for uh, the unfunded liability and the new benefits that are being earned today. Um, I, I think our best estimate is that pension costs now have gone from 2% to 7% of school budgets. And uh, the PSEA actually ha has issued information showing that um, you know tens of thousands of education jobs have been constrained or cut as a result of that. Um, so I think your, your callers will better understand on a day-to-day -day basis what the impact has been. But at a very high level, if one line in your budget is increasing from $1 to $5 billion, and again, that was part of a necessary and good reform, uh, it stands to reason that other parts of spending are going to be crowded out. Um, and so that's why we're encouraging additional attention to the issue uh, here in Harrisburg. And that is something that uh, when you hear school districts, local school districts say, well, we have no choice but to raise property taxes, pensions are a big part of that. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Greg Menis is the director of the Pew Charitable Trust Public Sector Retirement Systems. A lot of good information. Thank you very much for being with us here today. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Today is St. Patrick's Day, and while it is a religious holiday in some places, for many Americans, it means a night of partying, often by drinking green beer or other alcoholic beverages. Police will be out in force to night looking to keep drunk drivers off the road. Drunk drivers can be a danger to themselves and put other people's lives in danger too. That's a given. But do we know how much a DUI can cost you? It's one of the topics that we'll discuss today with George Geisler, who is Director of Law Enforcement Services for the Eastern Part of Pennsylvania, Team DUI, and the Pennsylvania DUI Association. And if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Mr. Geisler, welcome to the program. Good morning, sir. Thank you. All right. We know that there will be a lot of partying and a lot of drinking uh, going on tonight, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, but from a law enforcement standpoint, and your background is in law enforcement, uh, from a law enforcement perspective, give us a sense of what it's like on St. Patrick's Day during the evening hours. Uh, it's uh, pretty much all day long, afternoon and evening and into the wee hours of the next day and the weekend before and the weekend after. So it's a party period for uh, a long time, not just one day. And uh, it is extremely pressurizing to be out on the road as a police officer on patrol encountering people who have had too much to drink whether uh it, you know it's just on that one day or the entire period of the weekends and st patrick's day is one of those days i think about the night before thanksgiving new year's eve there are like three or four of them throughout the year that people designate as this is a party night and we're going to go out when we're facing one of those occasions like tonight what are police looking for 
Well, we focus on known driving behaviors based on the research that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has done with certain driving behaviors having assigned probabilities of impairment, such as weaving within your own lane of traffic. We know that that has about a 55 to 75 percent probability that that driver may be impaired, and that's what we focus on. Oh, you even have it down to percentages. Uh, that's correct. Mm. Uh, so uh, we also understand that there will be more sobriety checkpoints uh, out there throughout this weekend and uh, starting tonight. It, uh, you know, I've never gone through a sobriety checkpoint. What's it like? What do they do? What do they check on? Well, it's uh, it's a, uh, a legal operation to check for impaired drivers. In this case, there are different kinds of checkpoints, but we're looking for impaired drivers, not only alcohol-impaired drivers, but drug-impaired drivers as well. Um, it's a momentary intrusion into the freedom of movement of the motorist, which the United States Supreme Court and Pennsylvania Supreme Court has said that even though it is technically a seizure per se, that the uh, looking for the impaired driver and getting them off the roadway outweighs that momentary intrusion into that movement of that vehicle operator. Uh, and, and it's not just something that we're looking for for impaired drivers. We find people who are wanted, uh, guns, Warrants, things drugs, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, unlicensed drivers are huge. And... Um, it's, for us, uh, a very intense four hours of operation because we're on our toes uh, looking for the obvious signs and symptoms of the impaired driver, whether what, it be alcohol or drugs. What, what are the obvious signs? Well, the eyes are the window to the soul, and that's something that no can't one hide. can't hide. You can practice the SFST, walk and turn in one leg, stand all you want. But uh, when we look at your eyes, we're looking for about 13 different uh, cues, if you will, of impairment. Slow reaction to light. Uh, in the inability to focus on a fixed object, that blank stare, uh, bloodshot eyes, marked reddening of the conjunctiva, which is uh, part of your lower. You just eye. showed that on here on radio. I have to describe it. He pulled his eyelids down. Yeah, that's a huge indicator of uh, of uh, impairment on certain types of drugs. There are seven drug categories, and, and that's indicative of at least three. Um, and uh, pupil size is a huge issue. Uh, eyelid positions. Uh, whether they're droopy or they're just looking drowsy. Uh, and my favorite one is eyelid tremors. Oh, really? Which is indicative of at least two of the seven drug categories. <laughs> Your favorite eyelid tremor. I have to laugh at that. But, uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, drug use, and you're certified in recognizing uh, a, a driver who has, has used drugs. Um, is it becoming more prevalent today? Absolutely. Uh, since 2004, when we got the new DUI law, which included the word drug in the law, there to four, it was just controlled substances. Now it's drugs or controlled substances. All controlled substances are drugs, but not all drugs are controlled substances. For example, in the inhalant drug category, gasoline is the number one most abused inhalant. Because gasoline. Gasoline soaked on a rag, inhaled, uh, and uh, that's, that's one of the most common ones huh. we see. Um, uh, uh, the, the term drug, legally defined in Pennsylvania law, Title 35, Chapter 6, is any substance, and I underscore any substance other than food, intended to affect any function or structure of the human body. And that definition has been upheld with a case out of York County uh, that 
the gentleman was arrested for alcohol DUI, but in his own defense testified that he had consumed gasoline and bug and tar remover in an attempt to commit suicide. The Commonwealth amended, with the permission of the courts, the uh, the charge to include uh, the alcohol and drugs, and he was convicted and went up to the Superior Court, and it was upheld. The Supreme, Supreme Court said, uh, we're not going to hear it. What they, about prescription drugs? Huge. Uh, okay, let me put a two different categories here. Prescription drugs that are being used properly because someone has, needs the medication as opposed to those who we know that prescription drugs are being abused now for those just to get high. Let me start by saying that in 2014, we had 20,691 DUI drug arrests, which was 40% of the total of DUI arrests for that year, which was right around 52,000. We've seen that increase since 2004 exponentially growing. We know in some counties that have aggressive toxicology that about 60 to 70 percent of the people who are arrested for alcohol DUI also have drugs in their system of varying kinds, prescription drugs, illicit drugs, over-the-counter drugs, and whatnot. Prescription drugs, whether, and I was a pharmaceutical sales representative, and one of the things that the docs worry about the most is people taking their medication as they are supposed to take it, when they're supposed to take it, and not mixing it with alcohol. And one of the greatest concerns that we in law enforcement have at this time with St. Patrick's Day or any other drinking holiday, if you will, party holiday, is you take those drugs, many of which are psychotherapeutic, and you take them every day without any problems. You take them when you're supposed to take them, they're not impairing, whatever. And you add that touch, just a touch of alcohol, maybe a half drink, quarter drink, whatever. It depends on your body and your age and size and so on. Just that touch of of the alcohol added to the psychotherapeutic drugs not just doesn't add to the effect of the impairing substances. It magnifies and multiplies the effect so you get impaired much more quickly. And so the takeaway here is read the labels. Don't drive, operate heavy machinery until you know how this medication is going to affect you. And also don't mix it with alcohol. The big takeaway there is not mixing it with alcohol, I would assume. I want to switch topics on you a little bit. Uh, earlier this week, there was a story that made the rounds that uh, got a lot of attention, and that was the cost of a DUI conviction. You were quoted in that story. And uh, the figure that uh, was arrived at is that a DUI conviction could cost up to $10,000. That surprised a lot of people. It was that high. Uh, That is on the low side. If you get into your second and subsequent offenses where you need legal expertise that's above and beyond your typical uh, DUI attorney, uh, it can get into the 20s of thousands of dollars. Well, what goes into, what contributes to that $10,000 figure? Well, obviously, the attorney fees are uh, one of the largest, and it depends on what your charge is, whether it's a first offense, which is a lot less expensive than if you get a second or subsequent offense, but your fines, obviously, are huge. They range starting with $500 on up, depending on what the judge assesses you ultimately. If you have bail costs, uh, that's a variable cost up to $2,500. If your car was towed uh, because it was in a position where it was not legally parked and not safe to leave there, that can, uh, not only the towing, but the storage for your vehicle, $250, $300 a day, whatever. Uh, Your uh, 
if you have to go to drug uh, and alcohol treatment, that's very expensive. Uh, if they put you on a monitoring bracelet, as uh, we call it the scram bracelet, uh, that's $400 a month or more, depending. Ignition interlock, if it's a second or subsequent offense, 1200 to $2,000 a year. And, and these are uh, averages or you know parameters. Court fees, uh, that varies county by county. Uh, fees for the victim's assistance and compensation, uh, certainly... Uh, there are softer costs. Those are the hard costs. Your softer costs would be if you can get car insurance. It's going to be extraordinarily high because you're a high risk. Um, uh, any kind of if you're if you lose your job, which often occurs because you need your driver's license to drive, and you do lose your driver's license for a DUI, um, and then you get into uh, any kind of uh, probation and. and those types of fees, monitoring fees, um, it's a $10,000 ride home. Now, in that same story I talked about, there was a, a defense attorney who was quoted as saying it's not nearly that high for a first-time offender. Is he right? I, I read what Attorney Bright said, and, and he said that the $10,000 figure doesn't sound inconsistent with potential costs, though it's possibly exaggerated to the point that DUI is costly. Um Again, everything has variables, and certainly the first-time offense could be a little less expensive than that. But when you add all these fees and lost wages and because and, you have to go to court and you have to do this and, and uh, treatment and uh, maybe even the loss of a job uh, where you can't get another job because you're convicted of a crime and DUI is a crime, it's a misdemeanor or, you know, depending on how bad it gets if you killed somebody, then you get into the felonies, homicide by vehicle while DUI. And I don't think it's exaggerated. But I will tell you this, uh, the signs that you see out on the road that says DUI, you can't afford it, let's not hang our hat on a number. Right. Let's just say those signs that PennDOT has put up are spot on. Yeah, well, that $2,500 is nothing to sneeze at either. But, uh, you know, $10,000, that, that probably, as I said, raised a lot of eyebrows with that. Um, when does, in Pennsylvania, when does uh, a DUI uh, offense send someone to jail? It would have to depend on uh, a lot of different factors. Uh, certainly, there is a grading and sentencing chart. Um, for the second or subsequent offense, or if it uh, involves drugs. If you're convicted of a drug DUI, you get the same penalty as if you were at the 0.16 or higher blood alcohol concentration. So even if you have, a, say, an 04 BAC, but you have marijuana, tetrahydrocannabinol in your system, whether it's the active or the metabolite thereof, uh, you're automatically... You're, looking probably at a, at least a county jail term. On first offense. First offense. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Uh, drugs are considered uh, just a uh, uh, as dangerous, if not more so, than the high BAC, the 0.16, because the drug DUI, we can't say, okay, if you, like we can with the drink, we can say there's a standard size drink, a 12-ounce can of beer at 5% alcohol, uh, of four ounce glass of wine at 12% alcohol or a shot and a half of 80 proof liquor, uh, that's a considered a standard drink. And we know that every time you consume a standard size drink, 
uh, it raises your blood alcohol concentration between a, a 0.015 to a 0.02, depending on a lot of things, your age, your sex, so on and so forth. Um, we can't say that about drugs. All we can say is that drug impairment is significantly serious, and the legislature apparently thought it was as serious as a 0.16 or higher BAC, which is the highest tier for penalties in our in our current DUI law. Pennsylvania, I was about to say recently, but it's been some time now, uh, changed our uh, minimum. We went from uh, 0.1 to uh, 0.08 in uh, drug alcohol level. What what uh, have we seen as a result of that? We've seen a tremendous reduction in crashes and fatalities. Uh, when I started in this position 11 years ago, we were up around 13,000, 14,000 DUI crashes. We're down to about 10,000 crashes a year. Still too many for drugs and alcohol, just speaking of those. Fatalities have dropped significantly. According to the PennDOT statistics for 2014, and we don't have the 15s yet, 311 people lost their lives as a result of DUI crashes here in the Commonwealth, down from 600 and some 11 years ago. So uh, that has the, the lower BAC has certainly helped. But I think what's really important, and I try to get this out all the time, is those are per se levels. The 08 is a per se level. You can be arrested for DUI under general impairment with a BAC that's a whole lot less than an 08 if the officer can prove that you're incapable of safely driving, operating, or being actual physical control of a vehicle in Pennsylvania on highway or trafficway. Got an email here from Matthew who says, A friend gave me a keychain breathalyzer as a gift. It costs $25 and is very handy for checking blood alcohol level before turning the key, also educational. Do they work? Um, I wouldn't hang my hat on them. Certainly, it can give you an idea of where you may be, but uh, the fuel cells, the technology, and the cheap um, preliminary breath testing instruments, as we call them, uh, every time you, you use it, it kind of cannibalizes itself and becomes less and less effective the more you use it. If you're using a, an approved breath testing instrument from the Pennsylvania Department of Health certifies that they're uh, reliable. They have fuel cell technology, which is the Cadillac technology, if you will, of the preliminary breath testing instruments, and they are extremely accurate. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wouldn't hang my hat on that keychain one. But it's probably a good idea because even at the, at the very least, it makes you think about it. Absolutely. And, you know, that's the most important thing is all these fatalities that we experience here in Pennsylvania, 311 last year in 2014. And over the holiday last year for the St. Patrick's, we lost 10 people. If you look at the holiday weekend or the weekend before the holiday and the weekend after St. Patrick's Day, we lost 11 people. So um, it's, 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 a, it's a crime. It's a, a, a terrible tragedy that occurs and doesn't need to because somebody made the conscious decision to get behind the wheel of an automobile and, and drive down the road impaired. That loaded driver in that vehicle is no different than a loaded firearm being pointed at someone. And then the question becomes, is the trigger pulled? And so if the driver, for whatever reason, his eyes uh, can't function properly, and he yeah. crashes, 
Now we have it. Didn't have to happen. George Geisler is Law Enforcement Services with Team DUI, Pennsylvania DUI Association. George, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, actually, I'm going to be off, but uh, Ben Allen's going to be sitting in for me. I'll talk to you on Monday.